If you love to travel, you love cool experiences, you are going to love Viator. Viator is the world's leading travel experience marketplace. And for me, Sun Valley skiing is huge on my bucket list. So I just opened the Viator app, searched Sun Valley, and boom! Custom ski and boot fittings and tickets delivered right to our condo. Pretty unbelievable. Just download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking. One app, over 300,000 experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. If you love to travel, you love cool experiences, I think you're going to love Viator. If you haven't heard, Viator is the world's leading travel experience marketplace. They've got everything from simple tours to extreme adventures, all the cool and interesting stuff in between as well. Well, this year, my wife and kids are making one of my bucket list trips come true. We're going to Sun Valley. So we're going to fly to Sun Valley, and I tell you, the thought of bringing skis, poles, boots, snowboards, everything overwhelming. But that's where Viator came in. They made this incredibly easy. I just opened the Viator app, searched Sun Valley, and boom, Viator arranges a first-class experience, custom ski, snowboard, and boot fittings, and tickets delivered right to the condo. It's pretty amazing. Experiences are what we love most about travel. They create these long-lasting moments and make memories that will last a lifetime. Just download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking. One app, over 300,000 experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Garden Views. Interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everybody into Garden Views. Today we've got two guests and we're going to be talking about death and taxes, two things that are very scary. So this is definitely ripe for Halloween. Um, before we get started into this legal themed episode of Garden Views, I need to remind everyone that this is for informational purposes only and not to take this as legal advice for yourself. You are certainly advised to uh, engage and talk to your own legal client counsel, whether or not that's one of these good folks, that's up to you, depending on where you are and where they're licensed. So our two guests is one is a returning guest and somebody I've known for a number of years, uh, Elle Burlington, who formerly was in Maryland and is now in Oregon. And she's been on the two Star Trek shows and the Cannabis Law show and probably something else too. But Elle, tell the good folks about yourself, where you're working and what you do. So I am mostly working these days in um, entity formation, chain transactional side of things with some tax controversy and a little bit of planning. I'm at a firm called Solar Whitman Cooper. It's in Lake Oswego, which is a suburb of Portland. It's where all the generic office buildings are, but that's okay because there needs to be some generic office buildings somewhere. It can't all be whatever Portland is. So yeah, I, I practiced in Maryland for a while and then I moved out here about six months ago. So just living my best life. Excellent. And our other guest is Rob Owings. He's licensed in Maryland, Pennsylvania and the District of Columbia. Rob, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, my name's Rob Owings. I uh, had the pleasure of working with Elle in Maryland when she was here. Um, so uh, I've got my own law firm now. I do mostly estate planning, administration, litigation. Those are basically all estate-related matters. Also do some business planning, as I've discovered that uh, 
you know, when you're dealing with estate plans for people that own businesses, it's a natural transition to be able to include that as well. So those are the two matters that I really focus on. All right. So, folks, we're not covering the flyover states today. Wrong. We actually are because we're going to be talking about federal uh, estate taxes, which are, as you heard, federal. Now, some states have also have inheritance tax and, and probably other, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, idiosyncrasies. Um, so that's one of the reasons why you need to talk to your own attorney in your own place. So we're going to try to do this as sort of a 30,000 foot to 10,000 foot view. Uh, and so, Rob, I think I'll ask you to start. What are we, what are you mostly talking about here and what are we trying to do? Well, the, the topic of discussion really is the estate tax in general. Um, speaking at a federal level, the estate tax is a tax on the entirety of your estate if it's over a certain exemption amount. Uh, and it's a significant tax. It gets up to 40% really quickly. Um, as of this year, the estate tax exemption per person is $12,060,000. Uh, again, a, a pretty significant exemption. However, something to keep in mind is in 2025, the current laws are set to sunset, and the exemption is going to drop back to three and a half. That's if, of course, as of any law, right? It's good until they change it, but that's the way it exists right now. So um, I heard on I can't tell you how many occasions in 2010 when the last time we had an estate tax law that sunset every single person was saying there's no way they're going to let it expire there's no way they're going to let it expire and immediately what happened 2010 the estate tax law expired so for the year 2010 there was no estate tax coincidentally George Steinbrenner passed on I believe January 1 2010 so the government missed out on 40% of a few billion dollars, so I'm sure that's why uh, they may not let it slide again. The Steinbrenner uh, rule. Yeah, at, at, at any rate, it's a significant exemption amount, but when you're over that exemption amount, it's a significant hit. And it's a hit also um, on money that you've already paid tax on, for the most part. So, so it's your entire estate. So to the extent that that was earned income, you taxed when you earned it. When you get over that exemption amount, you get hit again for another 40% if you're in that category. Right. And again, at, the exemption now at twelve million sixty thousand, which is indexed for inflation. That's why it's an odd number. Um, you know, not as much of a concern, but if it does sunset in twenty twenty five and that drops by seventy five percent, now all of a sudden a lot more people are going to be involved in this. What about if you're married? So if you're married, there's a concept that was introduced in two thousand twelve called portability, and what that says is okay, you have spouse A and spouse B each this year get twelve million sixty thousand dollars of exemption, portability says, okay, we're not going to tax the first spouse's passing, but what we're going to do is say when the second spouse passes, they just get double the exemption. Okay. So nothing at the first spouse's death, the second spouse gets twelve million or twenty-four million one hundred twelve thousand base that's if it happens this year, and then of course index for inflation going forward. What about uh, long time I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, portability did away with a lot of the old uh, AB trust planning where you had to, each exemption was individual, and you had to carve out that exemption amount, set it aside so that you didn't lose it, and then do it again at the second spouse's death to make sure each exemption got captured. So portability actually simplified that a little bit. So what happens, there's a situation with more than one spouse, like a widow remarriage situation, like how does that work? 
Well, it depends. So you have to, one of the things you have to do, and this is where people slip up a lot, is in order to preserve portability, you have to file a tax return, even though nothing's due, and select portability at that first spouse's death. And there's a thing called a deceased spouse unused exemption amount, D-E-S-U-E. Uh, I don't know why they use that acronym. It doesn't spell anything, but there it is. <laughs> um, and so that amount is kept by the surviving spouse and remarriage won't affect that from the standpoint that they can use that, but then they can't use, so you can't use multiple spouses as one of the other. What about if you are long-term partners in a state that recognizes common law marriage versus one that doesn't? If, if it's common law marriage and you're recognized as married, then it should count as that. I mean, that's a state-specific issue, obviously, when you want to look at that. Because to your point, um, I happen to have taken the bar and gotten licensed initially in a state that does have its own state tax regime. So that's something that you, you definitely have to check in each state. Um, like you said, I, I started out in Maryland, which has its own tax, state tax regime at $5 million exemption apiece, not indexed for inflation. Um, there are some that have none at all. There are others that just say, well, whatever the federal exemption is, ours is the same as that. And so you, you really have to take a look at that. And uh, and keep in mind, it's based about on pond where the person passing was domiciled. So if we pass in a state that has a state tax, but you're leaving it to children that live somewhere else that doesn't, it's still subject to a state tax because you pass in that state that does have it. Right, so it gets risky, and common law marriage is sometimes contested and not as clear as maybe you'd like it to be. What about just long-term partners that are long-term uh, same-sex or, or uh, opposite-sex non-binary partners who, uh, you know, they've never got married, they didn't do a domestic partnership registration where that exists, and there is no common law marriage? Well, in that case, it's even worse because what happens there is if there's no agreement in place, no common law marriage, no domestic partnership, then they're treated as a friend, basically, and that could also subject them to an inheritance tax if that exists. Um, and my last question, and I, th and I think I know the answer already, but uh, this, this is what about gay marriages if, in fact, the Supreme Court reverses that, which, you know, a few months ago, nobody thought was thinkable, and now all of a sudden, it's it's possible. Um, so, I assume that would revert the status of those couples back to friends. Either that, or they would have to grandfather it in somehow. Okay, they would have to. Say, we're going to make it effective as of this date. If you were already married, you're still married. We're not going to go back and reverse all that. Um, Given the way that they treat things like that in the past, I would suspect there'd be some kind of grandfathering and say, we're just not going to recognize it going forward because I can't imagine the legwork involved in going back and trying to reverse it yeah. for as long as it's just been legalized. That would be a, a disaster. Of, because if you think about it, then you're looking at all those income tax returns for those years and all those other items associated with other things that would also have to be reversed. And I can't imagine them the government even being able to do that, let alone wanting to. So I would think it would be some sort of grandfather situation where they say, okay, we're reversing gay marriage as of this day going forward. You can't do it anymore. If you were married prior to this day, then you're married. So, but pro so you're saying retroactively would not apply, but prospectively, you're just friends. Yeah, I mean, that's the way I would think. I mean, I don't know because we have to, hopefully, I don't, you know, who knows what's going to happen, but we'd have to see what they do if they actually did reverse it. Okay. Gotcha. Just like that, could have same-sex couples that married for years and years and filed, you know, eighteen joint tax returns. 
they would have to go back and say, now none of those are valid, and I can't imagine the administrative nightmare associated with that. No, I agree. Well, I, go ahead. And plus, you'd have the issue of the state versus federal thing, assuming that they invalidate it federally, and then, you know, it goes back to the states, like, what's going to happen there? Um, that's always something fun to think about. So Correct. Yeah. Because uh, there's been oh, there was another topic recently. The same thing happened, and they kicked it back to the state. And my state just said, "Well, guess what? We're not changing anything." So that decision didn't really affect anything. Right. Well, people do move, and and as you Correct. pointed out, there Correct. there could be errors in other states as well. Um, okay. So we talked about estate taxes, and we talked about inheritance taxes. Just quickly, what's what's the difference? I know we're not going to cover all of the states by any means. And between all of us, we're licensed in probably a total of six jurisdictions with most with overlapping Maryland, D.C. And, uh, uh, well, yeah, probably just overlapping Maryland and D.C. Um, so just generally, what are the differences? I don't know which one of you wants to handle that one. I can that for you. So estate tax is the tax on the entirety of your assets owned individually by you and your pastor. So... It's just basically they, they sum up all of everything you own and they say, okay, here's the amount. Is it subject to tax? If so, what rate and so forth? Inheritance tax is on the person receiving the items. And the reason that is is because in most states, uh, a lot of them anyway, but again, this is state-specific. You'd have to go look. But what happens with inheritance tax is some people are subject to it and some are not. So, like, for example, in Maryland, if you leave things straight up and down the family tree, kids, grandkids, great grandkids, so forth, they don't pay inheritance tax, and siblings don't pay inheritance tax. But if you leave something to a niece or nephew, they pay inheritance tax attempt. So that's that's just an example. Or your friend, or your new friend that was your spouse a year and a half ago. Correct. And that could, and they would then be subject to that as well. Um, so yeah, it's something to keep an eye on, because at least with the inheritance taxes I've dealt with, there's no exemption. If somebody leaves you a dollar, you owe the state 10%. I mean, so there's there's not an exemption for that. But again, it could be a situation where you have an estate where some people are subject to inheritance tax and others are not. Right. It looked like you had something to say. Yeah, I guess part of the question in terms of um, estate, size of estate is, and this is one thing I was never able to really wrap my brain around, was how um, lifetime giving factors in. Because there's... The yearly threshold, which seems to keep getting adjusted for inflation, I think it's what it like sixteen thousand now. Sixteen thousand. Um, um. So the premise being that you can gift to any and correct me when I'm wrong because I know I will be. You can give to um any one individual up to fifteen thousand dollars for value thereof or property value thereof without being subject to gift tax, you still have to file a return. Am I, I'm going to leave this all to you. Um, uh, no, actually, that's so the, what they actually call that is the gift tax exemption amount. And the IRS says that's not even, we're not even going to count that as a gift. We're just going to say that's your exempt amount. You can give that per person per year. Again, 16000 this year. And as long as you stay at that amount or below, then we're not even going to count. It's when you give something in excess of that value to the same person in the year, then you have to file a gift tax return, just form 709. And what happens is, like, let's give 50000 and your return will show you gave 50000 
they'll subtract the $16,000 allowance and the, the taxable gift is 34. And what happens, your lifetime exemption works in tandem with the gift tax. So let's say you have, I'm going to use 60,000 because I didn't, I don't like the math building. I never went near it. Um, so 12 million, 60,000, let's say you give a $60,000 capital your uh, taxable gift rather. And you know, you, did they take off the 16? So you still have 60,000 left. And what happens is when you pass away, they go back and look at your 709s of what gifts you gave during your life. And that gets subtracted from your exemption. So if you gave $60,000 worth of taxable gifts and filed your 709s properly, what happens is your exemption will now be 12 million instead of 12 thousand because you gave away that much during your life. Okay. The way that comes into play is, you know, if you give away something that's going to appreciate value, what happens is that appreciation is not part of your estate. So if you give away $60,000 worth of stuff and it appreciates to, you know, 100000 well, 40000 of that is not part of your estate tax liability. So it's basically the appreciation that gets out of your estate when you give something to what about you? We were talking about estate and inheritance tax. So, if I understand yeah. correctly, inheritance tax is on what goes through probate, but estate tax may be beyond that. Is that correct? No. Um, probate is just whether you use trust or will. Um, estate tax is here's the total amount of things I own. This is the dollar value. Is it subject to tax or not? So, for this year, if you have $11 million worth of assets and you own your passing and you know, the exemption is still twelve million sixty thousand. well, then you don't owe any estate tax. Inheritance tax is on the person specifically receiving it and their relationship to you. So, you know, you can only have a million-dollar estate, but if you leave that million-dollar estate, for example, in Maryland to a nephew, well, then he's going to owe the state $100,000 worth of tax. What if you have an estate over the amount, but it's... I'm sorry, I, I was talking over you. Can you repeat that? Oh, yeah. It's all, it's based on the relationship to the deceit. Okay. So again, it, for, for a Maryland example, because they're one of that I know has an, an inheritance tax regime. If I leave, if I have a $10 million estate, or let's say $4 million, just to stay, keep this state, the state tax stuff out of it. So let's say I have a $4 million estate, I leave it all to my children in Maryland, no inheritance tax. If I leave it all to a nephew, $400,000 worth of inheritance tax. If I leave, you know, four point or three point nine million to a child, no inheritance tax for that child, but I leave a hundred thousand to my nephew, he still pays ten thousand. So it's based on the relationship to the deceit. And inheritance tax there's no exemption. Like I said, somebody a dollar they owe So and and this um, and you can forgive me if I get this wrong, is the, is it also a question of who pays the tax? Um, um, yeah. Normally yeah. if you're estate tax that'll be paid before anything's distributed. And the inheritance tax is paid by the individual because, again, it could be a very likely scenario where some people that are inheriting from the estate are subject to inheritance tax and others are not. What about in the case where somebody, they don't have much in their own name necessarily, but they had a significant life insurance policy or a 401k or IRA or some combination where you have a pay on death or, or you know, death beneficiary? Is that calculated into the inheritance or the estate tax if it never goes estate through a... Go ahead, sorry. Yeah. Estate totals, yes. It's not counted into um, the... So it, the inheritance tax would count, 
um, as far as IRAs and so forth. Life insurance you receive as a tax-free benefit. That's one of the benefits of doing it. Um, so that's that's one reason to do life insurance. But an IRA and stuff would be subject to that. So technically, that stuff is open. Okay. So life insurance, if you have the choice, life insurance is the way to go. But obviously most people, you know, you get a 401k or IRA partially through work and there's other advantages to that. But that would count. If you, if you have a lot of money in those types of assets, uh, you probably want to think about some type of estate planning. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And especially if you're charitably inclined. I mean, I, always, I tell people this all the time. If you have retirement accounts and you're charitably inclined, that's where you leave all your charitable because they're not going to be subject to the income tax anyway. So where they can, um, so like it, it's an analysis basically of who am I leaving it to? When, what are they? So forth. Um, or again, like let's say for example, here you wanted something to your niece or nephew. Well, maybe you don't do that out of retirement account, that out of your other assets, leave your retirement account elsewhere. So there are ways you can finagle who gets what, if you want to divide it up and so forth. Right. It's called planning. You have to, you have to, you have to plan. <laughs> then and you have to do it before you lose capacity and certainly before you lose your life. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's one thing I always tell people. The reason to do this is because it's, you can't fix it after the fact. Right. Now, yeah, so also, um, at least, and I say this mostly from like a point of personal point of view, like there are members of my family who have done um, life insurance funded trusts where the trust doesn't, um, the life insurance is payable on debt, but then um, it goes into a trust for a survivor's benefit. And that's one tool that I always, I don't know, that always sticks out to me because it was such a large part of estate planning in my family. But um, I just thought that was interesting to point out that yeah. that could happen as well. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting way that people use to get around the estate taxes. We set it up properly, set up what's called an irrevocable life insurance trust. The trust actually buys the policy and the person, whoever the grantor, pays the premiums to the trust as a gift. So it's actually a double hit. You get to give that money to the trust. So if you stay under your 16000 per person per year, you're depleting your estate in that way. And then what happens is, since the trust owns it, and again, this is because it's irrevocable. Revocable trusts don't accomplish this. Because it's an irrevocable life insurance trust, the trust is, as a separate entity owns that policy. When the policy pays out, it goes into the trust, and therefore it's not part of the taxable state of the individual question. What about a case where the, where the trust is the beneficiary of, say, term life insurance? Well, that, you can use that in a term, in an irrevocable life insurance trust. Um, and you want, the, in that case, you specifically want the trust to be the beneficiary because that's how it keeps. So let's say I bought, I set up an irrevocable life insurance trust. I maximize my gifting. So I'm paying $16,000 in premium a year, which can give you a significant amount of life insurance. And I put it in that trust. The trust owns it. I gift it to the trust. They use it to buy, pay the premiums. When that insurance policy hits, the trust will determine who gets what out of that, where it goes, and all that stuff. But it will not be that amount of the insurance benefit is not part of my taxable estate. So not only have I given, you know, let's say it's a $5 million payout that's not subject to estate tax. I've also depleted my estate by $16,000 per year by paying into that trust by to fund the premiums. 
I think we should probably do some basic definitions. One, well, two would be what's the definition of an irrevocable trust versus a revocable trust? And also just basically what is probate, knowing that there's 50 states and other jurisdictions that it might have different uh, aspects to probate. But there, you know, there's probably a high level definition just so people know what the words mean that we're stating. Sure. So an irrevocable trust is actually a separate entity. And the reason it's a separate entity is because once I, like, for example, the life insurance trust we were talking about, once I put my money in there, that's it. I cannot get it back. Um, it's given to a separate entity. It, it would count as a gift if I go over that $16,000 per person. That's why it's not subject to a state tax when I pass. But the, like I said, the downside is, and, and an irrevocable life insurance trust is just one brand. Any irrevocable trust, when you give something to it, the reason that you can get some of that stuff out of your estate is because it's a separate entity and when you pass it's not yours it's not part of your estate but the trade-off is you have to give up control of those assets during your lifetime so it's not a situation where you can give stuff to an irrevocable trust and then take it back and put it elsewhere you can't do that once you give it that's it a revocable trust is just a will substitute designed to keep you out of probate um it has a couple other benefits too. It's um, it, it's private. The will is a public record. A revocable trust is not. But for tax purposes, IRS purposes, gifting purposes, a revocable trust is you. And so it's seen as your asset. It's included in your taxable estate. And the reason is the revocability. You can put stuff in your revocable trust. You can take it out. You can tear your trust up. Say it doesn't exist anymore. The key word is revocable. If you have the right to revoke it, then the IRS says, well, you really control it, therefore it's still yours, therefore it's part of your taxable estate. And, and then probate. the final word is probate, and that's the one where what everyone tries to avoid. Um, that is the process by which your will is filed with the state in which you reside. And uh, to your point about each state being different, not only is each state different, sometimes the state's in the, or the counties, rather, in each state are different. So it's really based on the county in which you reside when you pass. So, and again, if they're in the same state, they're usually very similar, but sometimes there are little differences in processes and so forth, but it's actually county-based rather than state-based. Um, and that's the process where you file your will with the county. They say, yes, this is a valid copy. They appoint someone personal representative. And then you're subject to all the rules about you know, what papers have to be filed, Date of death valuations, um, you know, information reports, inventories, accounting. It's a it's a lengthy process, and it's not a uh, an intuitive process, right? It's not something you can go look at and say, "Oh, okay, this is easy." No, it's 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 definitely a dealing with a government process. Takes a long time, can be quite the headache. Um, and again, wills are public record, right? I mean, you can if you have a will, you once you pass it, it's filed. Anybody can. Well, I also, I kind of have a question because you were talking about probate. Um, imagine that my sister and I have a falling out and then our parents die and we decide that I decide that my sister doesn't deserve any money and my parents must have been crazy. <laughs> like, at what point do I have a right to challenge it? Do I have a right to challenge it? Because you see, all the, like, I guess a lot of the, I mean, the stereotype is, right, the the, the grandma dies and leaves all the stuff to the butler, and then the children get really upset and they challenge the will. So did, how often does that happen, and, like, what's the process by which it would happen? Like, in a, like you know, let's just say in Rundle County, Maryland, or somewhere where you worked, like, before. Yeah, it's, the 
process is called a will caveat. And they basically is saying, hey, this will's invalid for some reason. Either the people were under duress when they did it, or they weren't of sound mind, or some other reason, you know, that the will shouldn't be considered valid. It wasn't executed properly, um, so forth. So basically it's a challenge saying the will doesn't exist. It shouldn't exist. It shouldn't be allowed because of X, Y, or Z. That's a will caveat. And it's filed when, you know, the will is, you know, when the will is filed and then you say, because it, it, technically until someone dies, their will is not really in existence, right? Because as long as they have capacity, they can change it up to the day they pass. Um, so the will caveat will come in when it's filed and you say, okay, well, this can't be right because my parents must have been crazy. My sister shouldn't have inherited anything. I'm going to file a will caveat and challenge it. Um, the most important thing to look out there is standing. Um, you have to be somebody that would have inherited anyway. I could, like, for example, I couldn't go file a will caveat against your parents' will because I wouldn't have inherited regardless, right? So the judge would say, never yeah, know. Yeah. My parents would be generous. And well, there you go. Um, but yeah, that's a situation where a, a judge would say, hey, you don't have standing to, this is not your concern. But you, for example, could because you could say, hey, I know for a fact my parents were not mentally with it or my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's five months before he signed this will and here's the medical paperwork saying it. You know, so something along those lines where you would be able to prove that, hey, for some reason, you know, this is not, this is not valid. And, and the so, Go ahead. Oh, I am sorry. I feel like I'm getting a little far afield with this, but I just think of situations mostly where we see it dramatized, like where if you declare a will invalid, what happens? Well, there's a couple things that can happen. One is if there's a prior will. So let's say you did your parents did a will when you were born, and then they did one two years ago. Well, you get you figure out that the one from two years ago is invalid because of something like I said, like maybe your somebody had Alzheimer's or somebody was diagnosed as something other than being able to, to effectively execute a will. But you get that one thrown out. If there's a prior will, the prior will will then take the place of the one that got thrown out. If there's not a prior will, then you look into laws of intestacy. Which is intestacy is just the legal term for hey you died without. Right. So what'll happen is they'll look for so if you get a will kicked out they'll look they'll look for a prior will first if there is no prior will then you're subject to your state's law of intestacy, which is basically just a flow chart that the state says okay here's who gets what if you don't have a will here's how it flows. Challenges to and a state. I get the court to say that I get that painting and not my stupid sister. What's that? Can I get the court to say that I get that painting? and not my sister like can they make that kind of call like can i'm thinking of a situation like where you ask for declaratory judgment in the context of a civil case where you say i want the court to specifically say x or y um you know even taking out of account intestate succession and prior wills can i can a can a probate judge do that well they don't what they're going to say is, all right, you got this will kicked out, therefore there is none, therefore here are the laws of intestacy, each person gets this. Um, and they will do their best to equalize. So, for example, if your parents pass with no documents, it's just the two of you. Again, I can't speak to every jurisdiction because every state is different, but Maryland's one chart would say you and your sister square. Right. I mean, te technically, though, the, the probate courts are courts of equity, so I suppose they could... Right. But they probably wouldn't, unless it was the situation where you got the newest will invalidated and the prior will 
did have that painting go into you. Otherwise, usually they let the personal representative or executor as uh, make that decision. And if you don't like the person, if you don't like the executor, sometimes they'll appoint a third party executor who will get to make the decision. But challenges to the estate, I mean, they, they can come from a lot of places, but generally they fall into two buckets, family and the other bucket is creditors. Uh, and then sometimes you have that sort of that blurred line where you have a caretaker, which may be his family, maybe his extended family, or a caretaker who, who's been doing it sort of on because they were made promises, um, or some other creditor. Usually, unless it's a very large creditor, they're not going to claim, make a claim against the estate. Your typical credit card bill of, you know, $5,700 or whatever probably isn't going to, but I guess it depends on the creditor. But the IRS will, if you have a large judgment, they will. Uh, if it's a big business dispute regarding your 50% of an LLC, your, your former partner might. Um, so you, you don't, you usually know if there's trouble in the bushes, but you don't always know. And part of the probate process, probably everywhere, at least in my jurisdictions, is that you have to put notice into a paper and, you know, and, and there are claims that can be filed against the estate within X amount of time. In Maryland, it's six months. Um, and so the, uh, another aspect is that the estate isn't exactly liquid until at least that period of time ends and technically not until it's finally approved. So there's, there's a lot of wrinkle. There's a lot, things don't go wrong with probate, you know, often per rule, but when they do, they usually go really wrong. Yeah. And, and to your point, it's actually two different, two slightly different things. Creditors aren't trying to validate a will, they're just saying, hey, we get paid first. Right. Whereas, you know, family is usually saying, okay, this will is not invalid because I didn't get what I wanted. Right. Uh, but you're, to your point, yes, that's exactly correct. Is either way, it can cause a depletion of the estate and cause problems and delays. And um, I always tell people this about probate. You know, your, your estate tax return on the federal level is not due until nine months after you pass. So what does that tell you? They're expecting it to take nine months. For that long to figure all this stuff out. I also uh, con- confirm this for me or correct it, but um, Elle was talking about, you know, a, a will challenge. So a will challenge, the will really doesn't mean anything until after you're deceased and it's submitted to probate. So the, the challenging of the will starts after that, which means that you are dead. You, you, you know, the, the will is your dead person's testimony that we call the dead man's uh, rule. If you do your trust, it's alive and it's alive the moment you sign it. So the statute of limitations to challenge it presumably starts before you're dead. Uh, and, and quite possibly many, many years before that. So the statute of limitations might be over, especially if you've transferred like a deed or something like that, where there's public record of, of the existence of the trust. Yeah, but they, they won't, the terms of the trust upon inheritance are always dated as of your passing. So it'll say, you know, this person doesn't get my assets until this happens and I pass. And that's usually when they start the clock. So it's almost always a concurrent run. Um, but yeah, it, it, to your point, the, the real issue comes up when, you know, what if someone's alive when they have their assets in trust, but they're incapacitated? Well, a trust can govern that, whereas a will can't. will doesn't kick in until you pass. Right. Whereas a trust, okay, I'm alive, but I'm incapacitated. I can't change anything. I can't do anything. 
If you love to travel, you love cool experiences, you are going to love Viator. Viator is the world's leading travel experience marketplace. And for me, Sun Valley skiing is huge on my bucket list. So I just opened the Viator app, searched Sun Valley, and boom! Custom ski and boot fittings and tickets delivered right to our condo. Pretty unbelievable. Just download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking. One app, over 300,000 experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Want to create a breakthrough gene therapy or life-saving vaccine? Pioneer Aerospace Excellence? Take your hospitality tech brand international? Montgomery County, Maryland is where you can do all that and more. Use our ideal location next to D.C. Diverse world-class talent and our vast business resources to be the next company to make your mark and transform the world. Visit bnext.thinkmoco.com. That's bnext.thinkmoco.com to learn how we can help you create something remarkable. But I'm not deceased, so my estate hasn't been done. So statute of limitations doesn't start to toll until somebody's becomes goes from being a theoretical beneficiary to actually being a beneficiary. Correct. Because and, and the, the reasoning being is that, you know, it could be changed. Right. So, you know, you like if you like to L to your point, if you challenge your will saying your sister shouldn't get anything, well then six months later your parents changed their will. Well, there was no point. Because now they did it the right way, obviously. So yeah, that that's that's the reason that clock starts upon the publication of the will. Okay. So the the main thrust of this show, I mean, I think we need to go through some of the definitions and whatever. But what are some of the strategies employed to avoid taxes? And uh, if you don't have an estate that's anywhere near twelve million dollars, um, you know, why should you be paying attention to this? Well, you should be paying attention to it really because of the sunset provision right now. Um, yes, twelve million sixty thousand today, but in three years it could drop by seventy five percent or more. I mean, like any tax law, right? It's good until they change it. So um, it's it's worth keeping an eye on just in case, you know, given the current environment, just in case somebody goes through and says, well, you know what, we could collect a lot more money if we start taxing the states that are worth, you know, a million dollars instead of twelve. Given that the rate's so high, we could just drop that exemption. And additionally, we could do that and say, well, we didn't raise the tax rates. We just lowered the exemption. The tax rate's exactly the same. Um, so that's a reason to keep an eye on it again. Because of that sunset, we know it's coming in 2025. But it could be before that. And again, it could be even more significant. It could drop all the way down to, the, you know, there was a time when it was $600,000. I remember that time. Yeah, when I was a baby in this industry, that's what it was. It's um, yeah. So, um, but anyway, the point is, it's good until they change it, right? Um, so one of the strategies we covered, the most basic, the easiest, is gifting, right? I, I can give. I'm married. My spouse and I can each give sixteen thousand per person per year. Doesn't sound like a ton of money, but let's say you have four kids. Well, now I can, and there's a concept called gift splitting, which means if I give money and I'm married, it's assumed that it came from me and my spouse, so I get to double everything. So now all of a sudden, if I have four kids, I'm giving $32,000 per kid per year. Well, you can see how you can shove a lot of money out of your estate that way. Um, and it's not limited to children. If you wanted to give nieces, nephews, you know, whoever, as long as you stay under that amount, you give that 16000 per person per year. And just, you can really funnel a lot of money out of your estate. Now, what's the downside? Obviously, you can't get it back. It's, that's it. Right? So, um, but if someone's close to the limit, like, let's say you have $13 million, well, it'd be pretty easy over a few years to funnel out. 
enough money to get you below that exemption. You can even give it to me. Yeah, right. I, I'm willing to take donations. Mm-hmm. I work for the Me Fund. Yep. So, um, yeah, and we covered life insurance trust. That's actually a very common one. Again, you set up an irrevocable trust. The trust buys a life insurance policy on your life for the benefit of the trust. You get the premiums. They buy all the insurance they can buy. You pass. The benefit amount goes into that trust, and then you can dictate what happens to it after that. It can be you know, benefit children for their lifetimes, go outright to people. Point being, though, is you've taken, you know, $16,000 or whatever it is a year that you pay in premiums, and you've leveraged that into a much more significant number through the insurance, and it's not subject to estate tax. So that's another thing it can be used for is to actually pay the estate tax. So let's say you're way over $12 million. You buy a bunch of insurance, you have estate tax, you can use that life insurance trust can actually pay that bill. So that, that cash when it hits can be used to pay that bill. Uh, um, no, go ahead. With an irrevocable trust, you can't be your own trustee, though, correct? Revocable, yes. Irrevocable, I would say not to. No. Okay. Uh, because then argue, you know, hey, this is really still yours because you're asking yourself for money at this point. So that's, I always recommend that it's not you for your What about, uh, what about like your spouse or your kids or, you know, someone that's particularly close to you? Liz, there's no reason, I mean, now there's no reason for you to be barking at us. I know, he's going a little crazy. Oh, well, I was in the hell's dog, sorry. Oh, no, she, she abandoned me because her mom just got home. So she ran away. Hmm, I say. Mine is uh, someone apparently dared to drive down our street. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, I know. I can't that nonsense. But um, anyway, so, yeah, the, the, the irrevocable, I would always say, try to have an uninterested party, corporate fiduciary, attorney, somebody else that you can make legitimate claim, hey, I'm not asking myself for money. This person really has the control. Okay. Um, because, again, you get into the thing where a lot of people like to do it, where they, you know, they hide their spouse to it, and then, you know, then an argument can be made. Well, is that really control? Well, in some cases, maybe it is, but you know, who knows? Um, the point is that that I would say that it's better not to have somebody that's an interested beneficiary. Especially if you're worried about that uh, gold digger next spouse, that you're worried about uh, Fabio or you know, or Anna Nicole sweeping in and and you know, charming your your uh, widow or widower. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask about powers of attorney and healthcare directives and where they fit into this equation. Um, so powers of attorney only exist while you're alive. Um, they're designed to substitute, you know, for, Hey, I'm alive, but I'm in a condition that I can't make decisions. I can't do things like that. Um, the healthcare one is really, that's more, that's specifically designed for healthcare issues. Obviously this is who can speak to the physician who can, make decisions about what treatment's given. Um, and actually, they look harder at uh, withholding treatment. You say, no, I don't want my person to go through that. They, they actually really insist that that's documented. Um, the bigger risk as far as finances and so forth is the financial powers of attorney. I specifically always, and again, this is individual, but I, I, I always try to tell people, hey, you should put a clause in there that says this authority doesn't kick in unless I'm declared incapacitated by two minutes licensed physicians right um otherwise if you don't have that clause in there power of attorney you go right to the bank and start writing checks yeah i, I prefer now, that for all powers of attorney actually for all, all, uh, all yeah. capacities 
typically put it in the healthcare ones only because it doesn't contemplate an emergency. You don't want to have to have them declared incapacitated if there's an emergency situation, but it doesn't hurt. Um, financial ones, I would say always, I agree with you 100% of the time, I would say, because that's also when people start looking at it, right? When someone's incapacitated, that's when people start looking. If you're alive and well and doing your own thing, and somebody's writing checks out of your account, nobody's really monitoring that because you're not incapacitated, it's you. Um, but that's, you know, what you become, once you're incapacitated, then the power of attorney is subject to that on your behalf and in your best interest legal standard. And that's, that's where they will look at, hey, you know, what are you doing with this money? Why are you spending it? How are you spending it? You need to account for these things. I have two things I want to ask about, and it doesn't matter if you answer them right away or later on. I just want to say them before I forget them, because that's what happens when you're almost 54 and you're me. Um, but one is, what is the look back period that people are always afraid of, Medicare, Medicaid, whatever that is? And the other uh, item was, and I, nope, it, this, this is probably for L because you're in Oregon and this doesn't apply to everybody. Uh, but I believe Oregon has a legalized assisted euthanasia statute. Uh, and I think there might be only two states that do. I, I think one is Oregon. I could be wrong. But no, I think, I think you're right. I have well. occasion to look into it, but that sounds right. How, how does the, how does the healthcare directive play in with the assisted euthanasia if, or is that an exclusion that has to be the, the person themselves declaring for themselves. And but if you don't know the answer offhand and you want to poke around and look for it to buy some time, that's fine. And if by the time we get it around to you, you haven't been able to find it, it's okay to say, I haven't, it's not that easy to find. From, from what I recall, and by recall, I mean, I like heard a lecture on this or read an article or something. So this is me remembering things is that um, in order to be allowed to um, participate or to essentially get someone to help you terminate your life, you need to be, you need to, uh, you need to make an application to, uh, I don't know if it's a judge or a magistrate or basically it's like, you can't just wake up and decide you have to apply for it. And in order for you to do that, you need to be competent enough to assist in your own defense or, or what have you, which has caused a lot of issues um, because if you're dying from cancer and, you know, you you may not, I don't know what the, I don't know if it's testamentary capacity that they're looking for, which is different from, and, and you can, you guys can, can chime in on that, testamentary capacity versus However, um, however that works out, like the system is not perfect, but it's not something your power of attorney, like obviously if you're incapacitated, there can be provisions for pulling the plug, but I think you have to make an application to do it. Actually, can you hold on one second? Because I might have an answer to that. That, 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 That's fine. Yeah. So, but if she's correct, it, uh, you can't do it through the healthcare directive. You must do it in your own proper person. Um, okay. That's fine. Rob, what about the, uh, the look back period that people are always talking about? Yeah. The look back period applies to, so the way to differentiate it in your mind is Medicare is insurance. Medicaid is wealth. Um, Medicaid, it's a five-year look back. And what'll happen is they will actually go and, um, to your point before, we were talking about filing claims against the estate. 
if you end up in a situation where you're on Medicaid, when you pass, they will actually file a claim against your estate for the benefits paid you while you're alive. Okay. And, the, and they become a creditor like anyone else. Now, I, I would be willing to guess, not 100%, but I would be willing to bet that if you're in a situation where you are receiving that, you probably don't have much of an estate for a claim to be filed against. But that's not always the case, and that's something to keep in mind. A lot of people are like, oh, I should give away all my stuff and get on Medicaid. Well, that's great, but if you do that within five years, then you end up in a Medicaid facility and you live for another five years, they're going to come back after their piece of the pie. Um, and they will do it through a regular creditor estate claim, but because it's a state taxing authority, they're going to actually have precedence over like a credit card or an auto loan or anything like that. So there's a specific... At least in Maryland, and I know there's in other states. I just don't know what they look like in the other states. But there's actually a specific order in which creditors get paid if there's an illiquid estate. Okay. Is there any minimum threshold that you you have to have assets that could total a hundred thousand dollars, or fifty thousand, or two hundred fifty thousand, or is it just subject to whichever collector happens to be reviewing that file? Yeah, there's really not a certain amount. Um, I tell everybody that you all need because the, the unintended consequence of there's no documentation is almost never what you would otherwise want to have happen. Okay. Uh, so it's not really a matter of assets, especially in like, you know, second marriage situations like you said before about the new gold digger and things like that. Um, there are things where it's an automatic, but I would say everyone needs to have something, even if you don't have a lot of assets, you still need financial power of attorney, healthcare power of attorney, all those things in place because especially with healthcare now, doctors have gotten they don't want to tell anyone anything. Well, and also in kind of a situation, I'd say a situation like mine where I don't have a spouse and I don't have children, um, it would, in a situation, I, I assume, like, I assume in this state is the same as Maryland would be, um, it would revert to the, the decision-making power would go to my parents, correct? Like, they would be the ones who... Oh, oh they had, they, if you didn't have documents, they would have no court would tell them who gets what. Okay, so, but theoretically, that could cause a bit of a problem, and I love my parents, but we don't see eye to eye in a lot of philosophical things, so I have my sister down for everything, even though, in that past scenario, um, I actually didn't know that, that it, um, it didn't revert. No, there's actually a, uh, in fact, they don't even get automatic uh, personal representative authority. Um, but what will happen is, yeah, the court, there, there's a, I mean, you should be able to look it up in whatever state you're in. Just, so for you, just put in Oregon laws of intestacy, and it should give you a flowchart that says, okay, if X and Y, then Z. So, like, for you, if uh, if no kids, you know, no spouse, then it might go up to go to your parents. And then if your parents weren't there, it might go to your sister. So the flowchart will spell out very specifically, here's who gets what. Um and yeah, they they designed that specifically for people that, that haven't done documents, just so there can't be an argument. Right. Those laws begin, and that's the law, and there you have. It. And the executor, the personal representative, that's a best interest of, of the you know the court decides that on what who they think is the best person for it. So if the family that's is right. all fighting, they they may decide that nobody in the family is appropriate for it, and that's another way that the the estate, modest or otherwise, gets further depleted by this outside personal representative. Yeah, and I've actually been appointed personal representative of states like that, and they don't, you know, the court just basically says you have to pay them out of the estate. 
Yeah. So, L, your solution is just to gift everything to Rob and myself in equal portions. Well, yeah, and unless you want to make some really hard healthcare decisions for me when general anesthesia goes wrong. Well, what makes you think that they'd be hard for me? I mean, my nickname is Evil Dose. I mean, so. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, would I, people be allowing me to live? Oh, sorry. They won't even let us without proper documentation. You yeah. mean if I, if I can't? execute a medical power of attorney that has my neighbor as... No, 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 you can. I'm saying, you know, if you're already in that state, you don't have one. That's where a real problem becomes. Yeah, I have to I have to update that pretty quickly. Um, yeah, some states will still allow a spouse to make a decision, but even now they're, they're fighting that even more. Well, I have, I have a, an existing medical power of attorney in another state, so could they look to that for guidance? They, well, they could act some places may even honor that, as long as the state laws aren't wildly different and the execution was similar. Yeah. Um, they, people get hurt in other states or something like that happens. So right. that nine times out of ten, though, they just would want to have something in their hand that says they have the right to talk to someone. My answer to that is maybe, even probably, but right. not definitely. So. Correct. If you're moving to another state, okay. you want to talk to a lawyer in that state and, and get a definitive answer there, or it's and it's always safer rather than sorry to have documents done in that particular state. Um, and, you know, it's an additional expense, but it's less expensive than the alternative. Um, That's exactly. And, and to your, I mean, it's, I've had one kicked out by someone from another state because one state required the healthcare power of attorney to be witnessed, but state B, where they were now, required it to be witnessed and notarized. Right. And because the one from state A was not notarized, they said, guess what? This doesn't mean our execution requirements is no good. That's right. Federalism is a tricky thing, as uh, I think we've all gotten a, a crash course in. Even lay people have gotten a crash course in that recently. But uh, anyway. Um, what are some other big concepts that we absolutely should be discussing today? Well, um, I would go ahead, Em. Oh, no, I was going to jump on my favorite pet project, which is the Special Needs Trust, which is something I think you and I talked about as well back when we were sharing an office building. Right. And um, this is something, like, because I'm sure everybody not everybody, but anybody who has reason to live through this, any kind of state benefits, state or federal benefits for disability or social security or any kind of um, state-based um, Public assistance. Yeah, re require like an income threshold or below a certain amount or above a certain amount you don't qualify or you get like a lower rate of return or whatever. So um, in a situation where you have a relative or whatever who, and I don't know if it's, I guess it's different state to state. I don't know what they, what they need for the person to qualify as a special needs. I, again, yeah. but what? Yeah, I was going to say every state is different. Yeah. Every requirement for a special needs trust is different. Yeah. And so basically it's just like, to be able to let this person have access to property or assets in a meaningful way, like, so they don't have to, you know, 
and, and the system's broken, of course, but like they don't have to be poor just to qualify for benefits if their assets are being held and distributed through a special needs trust. And you guys can talk more about that. But I just thought that was an interesting little something that I stumbled over, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, my, my, yeah, it, my, my, my thing, Rob, you go ahead. You're the guest. Cutting in and out a little bit. The big thing there is, um, again, if you don't do documents and you have a special needs child and they inherit money because you didn't do a document, the intestacy flowchart says they get money. Well, now their government benefits are cut off, and they're cut off until the money they inherited is depleted, and only then can you apply to turn those benefits back on. And not only that, if if that never happens and that person passes with money, the the um, whoever was paying their benefits will come and claim that. So it can it can be a real disaster if you do if you have that situation and don't do any plan. Well, also even if you have documents but you don't have a special needs trust set up, that person's still inheriting. And and basically, the, the goal of the special needs trust is to allow the the special needs person to continue to get all of their or maximize their special needs uh, payment, whether it's monthly or every every other month, by only paying out from the trust the maximum amount allowable or less per month to not jeopardize their 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 special their assistance their public assistance and that way you can maximize it for the longest period of time um you know and maybe they outlive uh, the ability of the trust or, or or maybe the trust outlives them but you don't want to jeopardize their their ability to get uh, money. So I, I think in Maryland now it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $2,500 a month that they can get. It's That's not exactly right. But so the trustee would, would pay up to $2,500 to that for that person's benefit, but they'd still get their full 100% uh, uh, public assistance. But if they got, say they inherited even a modest state of $50,000, now they're not going to get any uh, public assistance until that fifty thousand dollars is is gone through, um, and and then they've lost their their nest egg. Correct, and that's exactly why you have to consider that when you're when you're dealing with that type of situation. I, I mean, that's really if that doesn't drive you to do something properly, and people forget about things like they'll have them on as an IRA beneficiary, or, or they'll you know, oh, I don't have a lot. Well, guess what? Your assets, your house, your personal property, and that you've created a problem for this person because those things have value. Right. And so if you have, go ahead. Can a a trust like this own property? Like uh, if there's a house that the, the trust owns a house that the person lives in, is that something? Can can that, I, I mean, I guess it's different wherever, but I'm just curious, like if it's just for paying out or if it's just, or if it's like a situation where it can, you know, hold money, um, and, non-money property. You mean, could they get benefits that have a monetary value, like free room and board? Yeah, 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 something like that. Or with that, and I guess that's something that I have to look into. It's just something that I'm kind of thinking of um, in the moment. Rob, I'll defer to you. Yeah, I mean, specific enough. Um, you would have to look at where you are, what the, uh, what the locality says regarding those rules of ownership. I mean, if it's an irrevocable trust, I would think the trust still owns the property, so it wouldn't be the recipient's property, so it wouldn't be counted against them. Just like if they lived in their parents' house, they they 
you know, it, it, you're not going to have rent imputed to you. But uh, it could vary from state to state. But that was a good one. Is it, Rob, was there anything that you were thinking about? Any, you know, things that we really should be talking about and addressing here? No, I think we've covered a lot of, a lot on this topic, which is good, because I can't tell you, I always tell people I have, an, I, I have a lively planning practice, which I like, I enjoy doing that. And then I have a whole other side of my practice, which is dealing with people that don't do these things properly, and it's the disaster. The court will find a resolution, right? They're going to say, well, here's the intestacy chart, or here's what this says, and here's what can, well, what people don't consider is the family is not the same. If you spend you know, three weeks in court screaming at each other because... You know, grandpa's car should have gone to one person versus another. That stuff doesn't get fixed, right? So it's just not worth it not to leave this out in the brief. Right. And it gets especially, well, everything's bad. But the one I the one I encounter time and time again is where one sibling has been living with mom and taking care of mom for the last three and a half years. But the other sibling has been more or less financing that. And they argue about which has more value. And that is, that's something that nobody can ever solve. And, and it's pretty hard to recover from stuff like that. And the, the more siblings or the more grandkids or the more people involved, probably the worse it gets. Um, yeah. The same, man. So I agree with you. We are coming real close to an hour. And I think if we started getting too much longer, I think people are going to glaze over on this subject, especially lay people, which is what this show is geared towards. Um, and, you know, we couldn't say it more than more times to say things are state specific, sometimes county specific or municipality, and certainly talk, you know, get the advice of your own attorney. If you're in one of the jurisdictions that our guests are licensed in uh, or I'm licensed in, you can contact us and we'd be happy to talk to you. Yeah, me, I'm lazy. I would, I would shuffle you off to our state's department. Uh, I'm a sourcer. I'm not a talk. I'm not a, I'm not a doer. Um, that's why I podcast. But I'm going to let our guests introduce themselves again or, or remind you of where you can get in touch with them, who they work for and where they're licensed, uh, if you want to get in touch with them. I'll go in alphabetical order. So I'm going to start with uh, Elizabeth Burlington, Esquire. L- uh, and LLM, right? Aren't you LLM yep, also? I am an LLM. Got my tax degree, which out here on the West Coast, there are not as many LLMs. So I'm I'm somewhat special. Not really, but like I think I am. So, um, again, it's Solar Whitman Cooper, Solar spelled S-O-H-L-E-R, not like solar panel. And that's where I am. And I have a Murder, She Wrote podcast that's on hiatus because it's impossible to get three busy people on a podcast together. You're kidding. As What? You're kidding. Whatever. <laughs> we only rescheduled this pod four times. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah. And in the meantime, just hanging out in Portland. So, you know, come say hi. Sure. Everyone just go to Portland and say hi. Uh, Rob, how about you? So I have my own firm, as we talked about in the beginning. It's Rob Owings, O-W-I-N-G-S, Law. Um, and the website's the same, robowingslaw.com. Not big on creativity, so all of it matches. Um, so, yeah, you can just reach out to me on the website, the email address, the phone number, and so forth are on there. Um, I'm licensed in Maryland, D.C., and Pennsylvania, uh, working on Virginia, but I don't have that yet. So Maryland, D.C., and Pennsylvania for the time being. I should also add that Rob did my estate plan when I was, that was like, what, two years ago or something like that? Because I was getting ready for surgery. Yeah, it was yeah. Uh, 
part, yeah. Yeah, I get to have surgery again, probably. So, hooray! You're like a box of chocolates. All right. Well, do you guys have social media? Anything you want people to follow you at, or, uh, or we all good? Yeah, my law firm has its own Facebook page and Instagram page. Again, both Rob Owings Law, easy to find. Um, I'm on both platforms, so give it a follow. Yeah, Rob. I don't think simplicity is not is uncreative. I, I think if you get too creative, that is the enemy of simplicity. I think in marketing, simplicity is very good. So. And, and Al, how about you? I don't, I don't think you gave the name of your podcast that's on a hiatus. I mean, there's a catalog that oh, people want to listen. It's called Murder, She Woke. Um, it's, we've done one season and change. It's just, uh, there's a lot going on with all of the hosts. And I think we're going to wait for the new year to see if we can get our shit together. Because right now it's just impossible to get everybody together. Yeah, but if they want but if they wanted to check it out, they'd have a season and a half to go through. And maybe yeah, by then you'll, your stuff will be together. To, yeah. to attorney, two millennial attorneys talk about a show from the 80s and Excellent. 90s. What's better than that? I'll tell you what's better than that. The three shows I did with my panel where we talked about Land of the Lost and we got midway through season two and then left you hanging and didn't even get any further because it was too difficult to get enough to get all the people populated. And frankly, Land of the Lost was... Uh, it wasn't all deep and ha- riddled with these secrets and clues like Da Vinci Code that I was hoping were embedded. Now it's just some stone guys who made a show. Anyway, for me, you can find me on Twitter at IcarusFellMD. The law firm I'm with is Dunlop Bennett and Ludwig PLLC. We have licensed attorneys in many, many states, but I'm Maryland and D.C., but the firm has people licensed in Virginia, New York, Georgia, New Hampshire, West Virginia, Delaware, uh, I think I said New York. Um, I think other places too. I think like Colorado, Texas, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and my other podcast, Garden of Doom, if you're listening to Garden of Views, there's a pretty good chance you already know about Garden of Doom. But if not, that is more occult, esoteric, things that go bump in the night, a little pop culture. Uh, Elle's been on two shows, Star Trek 101 and Star Trek 201. Um, so that's how we call that pop culture. Um, and... Uh, I also have a whole lot of wrestling podcasts. If you're interested in that, just tweet me, DM me, and I'll tell you what those are. Uh, otherwise, you're probably listening to a, a podcast about estate planning and going, why would I listen to a guy who talks about wrestling? So I probably should have left it out, but eh, I am who I am. All right, Rob, L, thank you very much for joining us. Folks, hope you found this valuable. Once again, talk to your own attorney, get your own advice, your own the advice of your own attorneys. This is not a substitute for legal advice. You've heard a lot of the idiosyncrasies, uh, both jurisdictionally and this is not isotoner gloves. It's not one size fits all. Uh, estate plans are plans for you and tailor for your needs and the needs of your family. So with that, I thank you all for listening and please like, rate, and subscribe and listen to us next time on Garden Views or Garden of Doom. Thank you. Seven years young Daddy said, son, if you're gonna be dumb, you better be tough. Don't ever start one, but throw the last punch and hit them hard enough so they don't get up. Early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. I shake my head and I roll my eyes when he starts talking about things like, damn.
Death and taxes, the world moves faster. Money and time, it don't grow on trees. Make your bed and say your prayers. Cause life ain't fair and it's never gonna be. Chicks dig guitars, tattoos and scars. Trucks and cars don't run on dreams. You can count on one hand the things you can count on. Death and taxes and your mama and me. From seven to twenty-seven, time flew fast, just like he said. It's kind of crazy. I got a baby across the hall, sleeping in his bed. I'm praying prayers I never thought I'd pray about, saying things I never thought I'd say aloud. Man, if my old man he could see me now, he'd shake his head and laugh 'cause he was right. Want to create a breakthrough gene therapy or life-saving vaccine? Pioneer Aerospace Excellence? Take your hospitality tech brand international? Montgomery County, Maryland is where you can do all that and more. Use our ideal location next to D.C. Diverse world-class talent and our vast business resources to be the next company to make your mark and transform the world. Visit bnext.thinkmoco.com. That's bnext.thinkmoco.com to learn how we can help you create something remarkable. Montgomery County, Maryland is where businesses go to be next. Home to a highly skilled, diverse workforce, a thriving business community, competitive incentives, and more. MoCo will help transform your business. Visit bnext.thinkmoco.com to see how we can help you be next.